Last week, I introduced to you sort of a picture of where we're going and what we'll do at first for the next three months, for January, February, and March, and then flowing from that some things that we will learn between now and the beginning of April that we will focus on and hope to do excellently. We're calling this work that is going on, we're calling it Life Together. It's life because it's the new life that is testified to in the book of Acts when the disciples were released from their jail time and told, go and share with the people the whole message of this life. It's together because that's how God formed the church Reviewing last week with me, if you'll just walk quickly with me through what we did last week. First, we learned that the church was brought together by Jesus. John 10 tells us that Jesus spoke to his disciples and to the Pharisees, and he said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them, and I give eternal life to them, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So that the mark of the church was that the persons had been called by the voice of the shepherd. They had responded and they were following him. But there was another mark on the church that we learned last week, and that was that the church was not just brought together by Jesus' calling, but born together by the Holy Spirit. We learned a bit about that in the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and miraculous things began to happen. But we also know that this is at the individual level in John chapter 1, where the Bible says, to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name, who were born not of blood or of the flesh or of the will of man, but they were born of God. This is the new birth that brings us into the church. We follow Jesus because we've been born again. It is through that new birth that we hear and understand compelled to follow Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the church is first a group of folks brought together by Jesus when He calls us. They are birthed together by the Holy Spirit in that effectual calling that God does when He convicts us of our sin, confronts us with our eternal condemnation, and then converts us with the power of the Gospel in which we believe and are saved. But there is a third component we learned last week, and that was that the church was bound together by their continual devotion. We learned in the book of Acts in that very hallmark passage, very important passage in Acts chapter 2. And you can go there because we'll be in Acts for a few minutes and looking at some other texts as well. In Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 42, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so they were bound together by their compulsion, by following Jesus, by their conversion of the Holy Spirit, birthing them with new life, 
they were bound together by these practices of gathering together, praying together, celebrating the Lord's Supper together, worshiping together. They were together. We emphasized last week how often that word is used in the book of Acts as Christ brought his church together. We also studied last week something further. We took a a highlight from Tim Keller's book called Center Church where he explains the responsibilities, the three primary responsibilities of a church. That first responsibility is that they know and understand the gospel and that they stay away from two extremes. The first extreme is the extreme of legalism where the gospel begins to be something like a set of rules rather than the conversion of the Holy Spirit and to stay away from licentiousness, irreligion where the gospel has no boundaries and no definition and it loses its understanding of grace One side, legalism, uh, spends its time on the reformation brought by uh, grace. The other side spends time on the forgiveness brought by grace. And there's a place in the middle where both reformation, the changing of the human heart, and the forgiveness are brought together in the church. Where no matter what you have done, you can be saved out of that. But there is reformation that comes with that in being formed in the likeness of Christ by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. That the fruit of the Spirit actually changes a person. And so there's that beautiful balance we learned also that the church has to define the culture in which it is planted. Each church has an individual culture that it is planted. There was a reason when Kingsville Baptist Church was first started up on the site where the uh, Huddle House now is. There was a reason it was moved here. There's a reason it's planted here. There's a reason that we have these these wonderful facilities and this wonderful location. There's a reason. It's because God has planted us in the midst of a culture so we have a neighborhood we take the gospel to. And as we go from the neighborhood to the nations, it's imperative that we understand the culture that God has planted us in. There are two dangers in that culture. The first danger is being under-adapted. In other words, we're only critiquing the neighborhood. All we're ever known for is what we're against and uh, what we are, are, are bringing judgment from God on. And the other end of the spectrum is that we become over-adapted and we only embrace, embrace and, and applaud the culture and we don't distinguish ourselves as a, what the Bible calls a peculiar or a particular people who are Christ-like. And so there's this danger in engaging the culture that we sort of pull away too much or we sort of pull into too much. Both of those are a challenge. We'll be talking more about that in the coming weeks. And then we found out, Tim Keller laid out, that movement is how the church takes the gospel to the culture. Go ahead, Peggy. There you go. Thank you so much. The gospel to the culture. So the movement is the church. That's the job, the task that we as the church have been given. You are where you are as a believer, 
Because God has established for you to take the gospel to your culture. Your family culture, your work culture, your neighborhood culture, uh, the culture that you have affinities to, maybe southern culture, maybe some kind of sporting culture. But the culture that you are immersed in, you're called to take the gospel to that. And so the movement is how the church, as individuals and corporately, takes the gospel to the culture. Making the gospel clear without its two dangers and falling into those. Making the culture compelled without spending too much time in condemnation or too much time in embracing making sure there is a balance there. And we found out also that in that movement, there were two dangers. Too much structure, too much tradition that leads to an inward focus where the main thing we're about is trying to preserve the institution. Now, that's a grave, grave danger. When we start thinking in terms of what preserves the institution, we fall into the danger of wanting to appeal too much to the culture and make the culture comfortable so that the culture will come and attend and give us money so we can maintain the institution. That is a dangerous place to get to. And it is one of the things that we will struggle with always. And then... The other end of the spectrum is being too fluid and anti-traditional and having too much of an outward focus. We inherited traditions and many of them were excellent and need to be held to because they were a part of how the gospel has been taken to our culture. But at the same time, we've got to be open enough to maybe make some changes without throwing those out. And so finding a balance in our movement... Now, this means that you have a job. You. You have a job. Wendy did as well as it could be stated. I just wanted to get up and give an invitation. It was fantastic how she laid out. This is what witnesses are. But you have a job. Jesus gave you this job when he began the church. Now, How many of you know what a meme is? Raise your hand if you know what a meme is. I want you to put it high enough that I can actually distinguish everybody. If you know what a meme is. Okay, so I need to explain this. All right. A meme is a little internet, one picture. It has a picture of something, and typically with that picture, some kind of ironic statement that goes with it. So that the picture and the statement sort of illustrate, and it's typically... A good bit of irony is built into it, or humor. And so there are a lot of memes on the Internet. In fact, there are little things called meme generators. How many of you have ever visited a meme generator? Come on, put your hands on up there where we can say, okay. So you see there's enough people here. What color is the hair of the people raising their hands? Is it gray? No, it's not. If you got gray hair, like I'm getting, you're going... What is a meme and what is a meme generator? Basically, it's a little place on the Internet where you can get one of these little pictures and put something in it so that you can put it out wherever, your Facebook or whatever kind of way that you, Instagram or Twitter or whatever your homepage, whatever way you're connected. 
And so, one of my favorite memes is the meme called, You Had One Job. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so this is one that's out there. there this, this meme generator, You Had One Job, uh, people are putting a lot of these out. And basically it shows how you had one thing to do and you messed it up. Uh, here's the first one. Now, some of you aren't getting it, and you may need to go back. You had one job. Get the school zone ready. Spell it right. Okay? Here's another one. You have one job. Here's one of my favorites. Some of you hired your cat to catch the mice, and here they're just relaxing together. Mouse is totally comfortable in the house. One of these days, listen, we're going to stand before God. Corporately as a church, and individually as a born-again believer. And we will have had one job. And that job was given to us in Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses. It didn't say you shall go witnessing. I'm not telling you that your only Christianity is whether or not you go witnessing. That, that's very different. Going witnessing and being a witness are totally different. You shall be my witnesses. You say, Barter, are you, are you stretching this a little? In the book of the Revelation, when time ends and God begins to shut things down, He makes a statement in Revelation 12.11. And He says this, They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And what? The word of their testimony. The word testimony there is a noun taken from the verb in Acts 1.8, witness, to witness. So as time shuts down, the church overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the event, and by the word of their testimony, their belief stated. And so being a witness is not sort of a spiritual maturity mark. It is what you are. And being a witness is important. My job today is, is to break this into two components. One component I'll cover this week. One component I'll cover next week. The component that I'll cover this week is... First, let's just go to the next part of our outline. Number one, here we go. Uh, back up just a little bit, Peggy. There it is. Thank you. The church was given one specific job. We are Jesus' witnesses. This is it. Acts 1-8, you shall be my witnesses. 
If you'll do a word search in your little Bible program, the word witness or witnesses or witnessing, you'll find out that this word is going to be repeated a lot of times. And, and as it's repeated, they'll be saying things like, we are witnesses of these things. We are his witnesses. And so a witness is an important part. Now, what exactly is a witness? Now, Wendy summed it up, what you've seen, heard, or experienced. That's, that's it. Now, the disciples had firsthand seen and heard. First John begins by John introducing Jesus, saying, That which we have seen, that, that which we have heard, he just begins by telling, that which our hands handled concerning the word of life, that is Jesus. He says we're witnesses to these things. We're still witnesses. We're witnesses of their testimony, of our testimony, and of Jesus' work, the blood of the Lamb, which overcame our sin and overcame our condemnation and overcame our enemy. So the church was given one specific job. I don't want to be the guy that has a meme in heaven that says you had one job and I'm standing there doing the wrong thing. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want us to be that church where the Lord says, Kingsville, put you on that corner for one reason. You shall be my witnesses. I don't want us as a church to stand up there together and miss that. And so we are his witnesses. And so breaking that down, thank you, Peggy, the job Jesus gave us is to take the gospel to the culture. We do this by being witnesses. And just one slight change, notice the change. We are the movement that brings the gospel to the culture. We are. You are. But say this, say the word, I am. A witness. Now, how serious does this get? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is that the enemy knows Jesus' plan. Satan doesn't know everything. He's not everywhere. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, and he's not everywhere. But he is observant. And he heard, somehow, I'm sure, based on the reactions in the book of Acts, he heard when Jesus told them what they were going to do because Satan immediately went to work against the witnesses. Now, how serious does it get? This is where we go to Revelation again for just a moment. This verse we need to mark and we need to ponder before we take any further steps. Because I think that, historically, I may have made this a light thing, lighter than it is, and, and, and I'm guilty of that, and, and, and I'm sorry. When we talk about being witnesses, we're not talking about some small thing that we kind of do on Tuesday nights. We're talking about exactly what we are and that hell is going to come against us. How much is hell going to come against us? I want you to read with me a description of what's called Babylon. Now, in the book of the Revelation, Babylon is a is a city, it is a spiritual entity, it is a uh, movement, it is what we would call the anti-gospel movement, it is horrid, and it is described in verse 3 of chapter 17. So let's go there for a moment. This, this is necessary to the seriousness of what I'm about to lay out. In verse 3 of chapter 17... We're getting toward the end of time. 
The city is called Babylon. It's sort of the anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-gospel world movement. It's a spiritual and physical entity. It's real, yet it's uh, somehow painted in in a a kind of term that helps us to understand. So here it is, verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now verse 6 is the one I was pointing you to. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When we talk about being witnesses, it's important that we talk about what's going to come against us. If you, if you take this seriously, hell will come against you. Do, do not be deceived in this. This harlot intoxicates herself with your death. And she is real. And she is alive. And So when we go into the book of Acts and we see that they're given a job, immediately this woman, this entity, this work of the devil begins her work. And you cannot get seven chapters into the book until she starts to drink the blood. Some of you may have noticed in your translations that the word witnesses was translated a different way. Does anybody have a different translation there? Testimony, what else? Martyrs. You see, the Greek word, the New Testament word for witness and testimony is the very word we brought over to English. It's the word martyr. In other words, a witness is a martyr. A testimony is a martyrdom. It's where we got the word. It's what Stephen is called in Acts 22. It says, your witness or your martyr, Stephen. So the word is not just that you will give a testimony. It is that you set yourself up to have your blood Drank by Babylon. Because you're in a spiritual war. This is why we struggle being witnesses. Because there's a battle about. Does this mean if you become a witness, it's guaranteed that this will happen? No. But I do believe you will enter a very strong kind of spiritual warfare in which you will be deeply pursued. And so... Jesus gives us this job, bringing the gospel to the culture. So let's go to number two. We kind of see in what's happening. So number two, as witnesses, the church encountered an immediate challenge to their job as witnesses. Now, I tried to encapsulate that challenge into four things. Here they are. First, distraction. Satan is the master of 
creating ADHD Christians. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder Christians. What does that mean? It means that we will often take our attention off the main thing and be hyperactive about non-main things. Let's give an example of the distraction. Go to Acts 1. If I announced today, if I announced today that we were going to bring in a leading scholar on Christian witnessing, how, how, what, what kind of local response do you think we'd get to that? Honestly. Think we get a full house? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we have a few. Farrell? Farrell will be here. Farrell will be here. A few more. But if we did a conference on a leading scholar on end times, what do you think would happen? Woo, Nelly, they'd start coming out of the woodwork. They'd come in and boy, oh, they'd fill this place up. Why? Because it's easy to be hyperactive about end times and miss that you're supposed to be witnesses today. And so when Jesus begins the church in Acts 1-8, we get it immediately. Look, look at what happens. It says in, in, in 1-6, And when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus had to chide him and say, You know what? It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. What were they immediately doing? They were immediately getting distracted. They were immediately getting distracted. Lord, we, you know, we've, we've read Daniel, and we know that the Messiah, and so is, now, is this the time? You're going to make everything right now? Are you going to fix everything? It's the same thing that happens with politics. I mean, we've got a political uproar in our country right now. It's just nuts. It's all over the map. And a lot of times what happens is we get distracted with that and we become hyperactive in it. It's not that I don't think we ought to be politically engaged. We should. But we become hyperactive in it and we begin treating people in a way that's not like witnesses at all. And we miss the point that we were not called to fix the country. We were called to be witnesses. If the country will ever be fixed, it'll be fixed by witnesses, not politicians. And the longer we put our trust in politicians fixing rather than the church witnessing, we will be very disappointed. And so Jesus says, you guys, you're going to be witnesses? There's going to be a challenge. Here are the four challenges. First distraction, getting off the subject. Getting, when did it happen again? Later on, you have the distraction when one part of the culture was not properly understood and began to be overlooked. Go over to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you've got a problem that distracts the church. What is that problem? It's a cultural problem. There's one of those little culture wars happens 
We've got Hellenized Jewish people whose culture is different, coming into Jerusalem, being saved, coming to Christ. But you've got the non-Hellenized traditional folks not wanting to rub elbows with the Hellenized non-traditional folks. And so the church gets distracted from her task because she doesn't understand the culture she's ministering to. And so they have a little infighting over culture and which culture is better than the other. And so since our culture is better than your culture, we're not waiting on y'all. Read it. It says it right there. Now, at this time, chapter 6, verse 1, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because the widows, their widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. It was a very simple thing. It was a culture problem. And so there are two distractions right at the beginning. You got this end times distraction and you got just a general pragmatic distraction because you, you can't, you're not taking care of business like you ought to as a church. You're not doing what you ought to do in the culture that you live in. The next thing is intimidation. From the very first testimony that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2, the society of leaders, religious leaders, turns against them. The people are moved by this beautiful picture of Christianity, but the ruling leaders are not because they are jealous seeing the people flock to Jesus. And so intimidation starts. They intimidated them in a number of ways. They beat them. They imprisoned them. They warned them. They told them not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. They did all of that because they didn't want them witnessing to the people. In fact, it said as clearly in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 17. Here's what they say. This is the religious leaders talking among themselves. It says in 4.17, But in order that it may not be spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. That was it. That's the intimidation. Here's the deal. All Satan wants from you to, right now is to shut up. That's all he wants. And he will let you go your merry way. Because he is not threatened when you're silent. He's not scared of you. So as long as you'll just be quiet, mind your business, it'll be all right. But when you set your heart to be a witness, hell will come against you. The Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail, but hell will come against you. And you'll be hated. So here is intimidation, beatings. You're just a few weeks into Christianity. And what do you have? Imprisonment. Beating, warning. Letter C, contamination. Satan knows if he can't mess with us from the outside with intimidation, if he can't get us off track with distraction, what he can do is he can contaminate us. He can put people within the church who get it wrong and get way off of what church really is. And you get that in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They take collections. There's giving. People are invested. 
because they believe that the gospel should go forth and these widows ought to be taken care of and the community ought to be ministered to, they give their money. They give loyally and they give uh, voluntarily and they give joyfully and they give very generously. And so this one couple says, let's ride that wave. Ananias and Sapphira, members of the church, confessing Christians, do something in chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge, bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. What were they doing? Here's what they were doing. They were using the church as a prop so that they would look good to the people they wanted to impress. This is dangerous. If we come up here to impress somebody, if we lead, play, sing, preach, teach, to impress somebody, to get a standing, we're just like Ananias and Sapphira. We're trying to ride the wave of self-promotion. What did God do to them? He killed them. He said, the contamination is such a danger that I want you all to know from the start how bad it is and why you need to weed it out and keep it out. You see, they knew if the church could become a platform by which we could gain acceptance in society, acceptance in our job. It's funny when I read political resumes of people who don't attend church and they list church on their resume, I think, ah, isn't that funny? Hadn't seen them in a long time. In fact, I don't know if I've ever seen them. But it looks good on the resume. Same thing with giving or serving or any kind of component of Christian activity. If church becomes the way we gain some sort of platform of acceptance or popularity or fame, this is why teachers are held to a higher standard in the book of James. Brethren, let not many among you become teachers, because as such we shall incur stricter condemnation or stricter judgment. Why? Because it's very easy to use teaching, preaching, and leading as a prop to get what you're looking for. In Ananias and Sapphira's case, they were using giving as their problem. Hoping to gain some standing through their gift. Letter D, extermination. Satan tried to distract them, stayed on course. He tried to intimidate them, they wouldn't shut up. He tried to contaminate them, God showed them, don't fool with this stuff. The Bible says after their death that fear fell upon the whole church. It'd be great if fear fell upon the whole church today. That's a work of the Spirit. So he said, let's, let's kill them. And so it began. Stephen and then James. It began. You see... If you watch any of these police shows on television, all of them will eventually have some story about a witness that's under some kind of witness protection program. And they're being held, and if they get to testify, some big 
drug lord is going to be outed for what he really is. Some big con, some big powerful politics. They're going to be outed. And so what are they going to do? They're going to knock off the witness. They're going to, they're going to pick off the witness. They're going to kill the witness. Here's Satan's rationale. If you profess truly who Jesus is, you expose what a liar Satan is. And Satan does not like being exposed for being the father of lies. And so, I want to tell you that you are in a witness protection program. That means that until God has you tell the person, the last person that needs to know from you, you're indestructible. But on that day that you've told that last person that God had sent you to, you might get checked out. Jim Elliott, we just celebrated the anniversary of Jim Elliott and his friends who went to Ecuador. And they had one last person to tell. One last Wadani to let them know of the king. And when they finished, they all died. Stephen had one last group of people to tell in Acts 7. One last time. And he told them. And he died. Until you have told the last one you need to tell, you are under God's witness protection program. But once you've testified what you need to testify, God may take you home. And that's not a bad thing. The book about John, Jim Elliot's life isn't called... Murder. It's called Through the Gates of Splendor. And it's about God welcoming home His witnesses. And so there's this distraction and intimidation and contamination and extermination. And if you are going to be witnesses, these are the things we face. How do we face them? Well, the Lord saw to it. And we'll just walk through this list. We'll flesh it out in the next couple of weeks. As witnesses, the church was given four ways to assure the completion of their job as Jesus' witnesses. Number one, inhabitation by the Holy Spirit. You have a power that's beyond you. God lives in you. And God's not scared of anyone. He inhabits you. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, as Stephen was, your life becomes nothing more than a vessel to get this message to that last person that you're supposed to tell. And the Holy Spirit takes you, empowers you, protects you, compels you, teaches you, fills you, changes you. He lives in you. And He's not scared. He's never intimidated. He's never contaminated. He's never distracted. And He can't be killed. He lives in you. And He is more powerful than your fears and your weaknesses. He's more powerful than all of your failings. This is the Spirit of the living God. And He's in and he is not scared. Second, they spent time in celebration of Jesus' salvation. This is 
the fuel for our evangelism. The fuel for our evangelism is not a conference in which evangelistic strategies are laid out. The fuel for evangelism is that you love Jesus enough to talk to other people about Him. When I met Sherry, I all but worshipped her, and I still do today. And, and because of that, I talk about Nobody says, Bart, let me tell you five ways that you can tell people about Sherry. First, tell about the day that you met Sherry. Her beauty that you beheld. Second, tell about when you got engaged to Sherry. Third, no. Talk about Sherry because I love her. And that's what the compulsion is that we worship in celebration of Jesus' salvation, and it warms our hearts and burns in our soul. Third, devotion to the disciplines and to others. That means we gather. What we're doing tonight, we're gathering. We've got 20, at least 20 groups meeting just tonight. At least 20 groups meeting just tonight on our campus. Four, five, six people in each one of those groups. Yes, we're still going to have a time of worship for those whose group is meeting on another night. Kevin will be preaching tonight. Sean will be leading in music as we kick off. We'll have a time of prayer together. So if your group is not meeting tonight or you decided, I don't want to meet with a group, I just want to come to church, we're going to be right here and there's going to be a celebration of Jesus, Bible teaching, prayer, and singing together. And then across our campus and even in some neighborhoods, we're going to have people meeting together and we're going to be practicing the disciplines of fellowship and prayer and and doing these things of, of accountability together. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And if you're not signed up, when we leave today, I want you to go right out to one of these tables. I want you to meet with Kevin or Tim and say, I want to sign up. Put me in a group. I can be here tonight or I can be here on Wednesday night and I can take part or I can meet with a group during the rest of the week. Many of our groups are meeting at other times, mornings and evenings. Thursday night group, Thursday morning group. We've got a lot of things going on for you to get together and have the devotion to the disciplines of prayer and celebration of the Lord and fellowship with other Believers and this wonderful opportunity. Finally, organization for handling problems. One of the things God has taught me over this last year and really taught me over the last few weeks and really taught me over this week is that church organization is not a bad thing. I've typically been a non-traditional guy and not seen the strength of it. When the church fell into the trouble that it fell into in Acts 6... They appointed deacons, and the deacons oversaw the structural issues of the church so that the church could carry out its organizational structure was actually beneficial. So organizational structure to churches is actually good because it keeps us from missing things and dropping the ball on things and overlooking things that otherwise we might not see. And there are people who are gifted in this, and they were chosen in Acts 6 to do this and oversee this feeding of the Hellenistic believers, the widows. Okay, so let's pull back to one thing. When you leave here today, you will leave with the knowledge that you're a witness. And it's important that you take that seriously. It's important that you that you understand you'll be held accountable for it. But it's also important to understand you can't be a witness 
if you're not a Christian. And if you're a Christian, the only way you cannot be a witness is if you are patently disobedient to Jesus. And so if you're at a place in your life where you're saying, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm not a witness. I haven't been thinking about it. That's not what I do. It's not how I think. First thing, I need you to just check your salvation. Are you saved? Do you have those three marks that mark the true church? One, the call of Jesus and answered, brought together. Two, the work of the Holy Spirit, birth, salvation that comes by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in human flesh. And as the Savior of the world, He died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And as the King of all kings, He has ascended to reign forever. And He is the one through whom we meet God and only through whom we can know God. And you must come to Him. And then if you are a Christian and you're not, I want you to check your obedience. Because if you're not, you're disobedient. Would you bow with me? As we close, uh, I want to invite you to, to come to Christ, to trust Him, and to commit to being a witness. Maybe at this altar you need to make that commitment. Maybe you need to make that commitment with somebody around you. But that commitment needs to be made. And some of you need to make that initial commitment to Jesus Christ and turn from your sin and yourself and follow Christ. Maybe you're one of those people like Ananias and Sapphira and church has been a prop for you so you had some kind of standing. I would ask that you turn from that today and turn to Christ. Others of you, you, you you're here, maybe you're new or maybe you're back again and you know that you really don't have Christ and you want to follow Him. You've heard His voice call you. You've been moved and convicted by the Holy Spirit and now it's time to turn from your sin and openly follow Jesus. That's why we have an invitation. Do you come down, talk to our staff, and we'll encourage you in following Jesus. Others of you gathering at the altar or praying with one of our staff about knowing this is my job. We are witnesses. Would you stand as God leads you? Would you come?